Let's go ahead and start this episode with the book's official synopsis, which I've pulled from the back cover and is just as 80s and bananas as I hoped it would be. It was the perfect weekend, dot dot dot, for murder. Lara thought the ski trip should be a blast. The old gang was getting together again for the first time in years. What could be better than six single girls out for sun and ski and apres ski? plus a huge house and a warm fire. Even with the memory of what had happened last time, it looked like the perfect weekend. Until things started to go wrong. It wasn't much at first. A snowman that melted when it shouldn't have, a weird phone call. But then, somebody went out for one last run and didn't come back. And the storm they heard about on the radio was getting worse. Laura thought everyone was up there for a good time but she was beginning to realize that someone was up there for murder. Okay, friends, that's the summary for Christopher Pike's Slumber Party, which was published in 1985. This was my first experience reading Christopher Pike, and while my guest was a big fan of the author as a young reader, revisiting Slumber Party for this episode made her wonder if she ever actually had read it before. But you'll hear more about that shortly. I will tell you up front that this book read to me like a fever dream. The forthcoming episode covers its wildest aspects, spending extra time lingering on slumber parties' more problematic moments. There is discussion about eating disorders, sexual assaults, and physical trauma, so please listen with care. I could not be more excited to have Allie Hazelwood on for episode 212. Allie is the New York Times best-selling author of The Love Hypothesis and Love on the Brain. Her favorite thing in the world is to explore traditional romance tropes and to picture how they'll play out in academic settings. Allie is originally from Italy, lived in Japan and Germany, and eventually moved to the U.S. to pursue a Ph.D. in neuroscience. She recently became a professor, and when she's not working, you can find her binge-watching shows with her feline overlords and her husband— running, or eating candy. Obviously, Allie is brilliant and talented, and it turns out that she is as delightful to chat with as you might expect. Follow her on Instagram at Allie Hazelwood. If you're new to the show, please make sure you're following along with all things SSR on social media too. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. If you're interested in getting involved with a more active virtual book club too, now is a great time to jump into SWR, or Shit We Read. Next week, we start our October discussion about admissions by Kendra James, and voting opened this week for our November pick. Learn more and join us at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast, or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. When you join SWR as an SSR patron, you'll be supporting the podcast and getting a bunch of super cool exclusive rewards in return. Think monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, an invite to our Discord channel. It's all good stuff. I would love to see you there. I am so grateful for the patrons currently supporting SSR. It truly makes a huge difference in helping the show grow. You can also help the show grow with a five-star rating or review or by sharing a screenshot of this episode to your Instagram story. Make sure you tag me so I can see it and share. Here's some fun news. I am now partnering with Inkwell Threads to bring you 20% off on all kinds of bookish swag. Over the summer, I purchased a shirt from Inkwell Threads that says, read books and fight the patriarchy, 
and I have been eyeing up the rest of their collection ever since. Shop the whole collection right along with me at www.inkwellthreads.com SSRpod or use code SSRpod at checkout to cash in on that 20% offer. I am very picky about my t-shirts and I can vouch for Inkwell's quality. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Allie. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's an Allie, Allie day. Double Allie. Allie squared. Double Allie, Allie squared. I mean, you're welcome, everybody. You got two Allies, and we have been talking for a few minutes before we started recording. And the other Allie, my guest Allie, just apologized <laughs> to me for choosing this book. And don't worry, listeners, I assured her that no apologies are necessary because, as you know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, I love when we come back to a book that is like sort of shocking in its issues, in its problematicness if that's even a word so like we are gonna have a really good conversation today please do not feel sorry this is what we wanted to do (laughs) when we dug back into these books today we are talking about Christopher Pike's slumber party tell me everything about your history with the author with the book Allie why did you want to choose this book uh, to talk about today okay so Christopher Pike is was i i don't even know i'm processing stuff right now yeah. but we have a lot to work through together yeah yeah but he was my favorite author when i was a kid i mean i i used to love uh, thrillers and i i mean i still do love thrillers but i think especially growing up i loved everything that had like mystery in it i used to be like a, a big agatha christie fan as well but I used to really love everything that had like some kind of mystery or thriller or murder or like supernatural. Supernatural, but in a spooky way plot line when I was a kid and uh, Christopher Pike delivered and he had a bunch of young adults. I mean, I, I don't even know. I think I remember reading at some point in the last few years that the label young adult is actually a pretty new label and Slumber Party is from... I mean, it's older than us, I'm pretty sure. It's from... Yeah, 1985. Okay, so yes. And uh, so I feel like maybe at the time uh, it wasn't even a label. I don't know. But um, I like I, I definitely gravitated toward everything that had some kind of mystery plotline and also involved kids. I just really liked that, especially female protagonists. And I'm pretty sure that Christopher Pike wrote exclusively female protagonists which <laughs> okay the other Ali is currently face bombing and I want to face bomb and one of the things that I was telling her before we started is that I I don't know how old I was when I was reading this book but I am pretty sure it was in the late 90s so I was young and I want to apologize to young me for reading this <laughs> because it cannot have been good 
for my developing brain. <laughs> Another Allie has just entered the chat. The young Allie Hazelwood is exactly. here. And she and demands she's blaming me for everything. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> you and Christopher Pike. Like you don't need to take the fall for all of his mistakes. <laughs> Honestly, I yeah, so I, I used to the, the background is that I loved Christopher Pike. He has a lot of books, uh, actually, that are very similar to Slumber Party. He has another book called Weekend that has pretty much the same plot, except that instead of being uh, um, a group of friends uh, who have uh, this dramatic, traumatic inc- incident in the past, uh, and uh, they are meeting up again, and kind of like everything ends up being explained, and there are mysteries, instead of happening in uh, in the snow, in a very cold place, it happens. I want to say, you know, I haven't reread that book in a long time, but it's, uh, it's the opposite. There is like a a mansion in a very warm place and everyone is swimming and everyone is wearing bathing suits so it, it's even worse <laughs> it's like a sexy version of this exactly and i mean i feel like this one was already pretty like not sexy in a good way but like weirdly nasty in some parts but you know aside from that but yeah it's the same thing a bunch of teenagers and there is a traumatic thing uh, uh, that ha- that hurt one of them in the past and uh, uh, there is a revenge plot and it's it's kind of like a very similar thing uh, again this is spoilers for for weekend for the book weekend but like it's still like a sister thing where one of the sisters is starting to get revenge because of something that happened to the other sister but aside from that, a Weekend was my favorite, but I also remember really, really enjoying Slumber Party. I read it at least twice when I was a kid because I remember reading it once and then once I got to the ending and learned the twist, uh, I remember reading it again. And uh, I, I must have been 10, maybe. Like, I don't even know what the age was, but I know that after that, and oh, another thing. So obviously, you know, English is now my first language. I'm Italian. I read it in, translated in Italian. So this was the first time for me reading it in English. And um, I have also, after that, I pretty much read everything that Christopher Pike wrote. Like he has this really long vampire series that I used to love. He has these like books about a girl who's, it's kind of like The Lovely Bones, but actually a young adult book. Like it's this girl gets murdered and then she becomes a ghost and she solves her own murder. I read a middle grade series by him, uh, like the Spookyville or something series. I read, I I think I probably read at least 30 Christopher Pike books. (laughs) Like, I, You're a fan. And now I am You're an adult a with a lot of anxiety disorders, a lot of insecurities, a lot of issues, and I blame him. I know where to put the blame. I used to blame my parents, but no, now I blame Christopher Pike. I mean, we figured it out. That's so great. <laughs> like, okay, perfect. We're, go I think now. we're good. Like, we're done. Okay, yeah. bye, everybody. Like, we solved all of Ali's problems. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> I think if you have therapists, they owe you a lot of money. Like, it's, we figured it out. You're welcome. This exactly. is what I'm here to do. Oh, wow. Okay, you just said so many things that I want to respond to, which is great. So... The first thing I want to talk about is your mention of YA as a category. And you're right that YA is a relatively new classification. I don't think there was like an exact year when it became a thing, but it's definitely something that we saw become more prevalent. I would say in like the late 90s, early aughts, that's when it really started. And then obviously now it's this like whole full-blown thing that has incredible representation and such variety. And they're just like 
mind-blowingly talented authors that are contributing to this category now but not Christopher Pike no, no not Christopher not Pike. one of them <laughs> no not not him but this book came out in 1985 and it was the first of his books which I didn't know because I never read Christopher Pike when I was a kid are you an adjusted adult is that for sure not for sure not <laughs> so maybe because uh, if if you were I would yeah. know exactly that it's just because you didn't read Christopher Pike right well then we really would have solved your problems and everybody's <laughs> problems and we could have walked away but now that we've discovered that I too am in therapy and have anxiety and am not well adjusted I think we're back on track to have this book conversation because it seems like there was maybe some other stuff in the sauce <laughs> So Slumber Party was Christopher Pike's first book, and this is a conversation that comes up relatively frequently on the podcast, just this notion of like, especially for these older books, and I think the 80s is really like a an especially interesting time to talk about it because prior to the 80s, it seems to me that there was still like a resistance to exposing young readers or young viewers, if we're talking about movies or TV, to certain like mature themes or activities. So like sex or drinking or drugs, I do think that up until that point, maybe earlier, like maybe we're talking probably through the 60s, like the literature that we've read for the podcast for teens to that point, it's pretty clean by our standards. Like we're not talking about partying or intimate relationships and that kind of thing. But as we progressed more into the 70s, 80s, and then of course the 90s, there was more comfort with discussing those things with teens and maybe even middle graders but there wasn't really like a place for it yet because YA wasn't a thing so it's like you can see in a book like this Christopher Pike playing with a couple of different things where it's like there's drinking there's sex there's non-consensual sex like there's all kinds of things that are way heavy but it's unclear like where this book would belong in a bookstore it was re-released in 1991 under the point horror banner which I again, this is all new to me, but included books by authors like R.L. Stein and Caroline Cooney. And so I would imagine that then maybe it had a clearer home. But when it actually came out, like I'm sure people didn't know what to do with it. And so that's worth noting. I really want to talk about what you said, Allie, about Christopher Pike as a man writing about teen girls. And I was shocked by that as I was reading. I think there are at least three or four points in the margins where I actually wrote like, this is what I would imagine a middle-aged man would think goes on in the brains of teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. And so now that I know from you that this is a thing that he did frequently, like I'm kind of fascinated by that. And like, why, like why, I, I, why? Of all the books of his that I have read, the only one that I can think of having, uh, and I mean, again, I, I this is not, this isn't well researched. Um, so I might be like, a, please don't quote me. But as far as I can remember, the only book of his that I can recall having a male main character is the middle grade that is like this long series. It has four main characters actually. And I might even be wrong, be wrong about that, but all his main series are with women protagonists. And uh, what you say resonates so well. Like, I know we talk a lot about like breasted boobily and the way men write women. Uh, I feel like this is even more insidu- insidious because it's like these older, obviously older men talking about teenage girls in an incredibly reductive way and uh, portraying them as these like catty, petty, 
just generally kind of unintelligent uh, creatures and uh, also like he does it like he does it from their point of view so it's even worse because I, I, I mean I don't think that when I was young I would have uh, I would have even known that he was a middle-aged man like I, I, I don't think that at the time when I was a kid I would pick out books uh, thinking about who was writing them and how the person who was writing the book could put their own point of view and their own feelings and thoughts and emotions in the book you know what I'm saying totally and I certainly like don't want to say that this is I'm about to make a comparison that I want to be clear up front I'm not saying that we're we're making an apples to apples analogy here like these are two very different things Mm -hmm. But I want to point out the fact that, like, over the last couple of years, we've had all these really meaningful conversations about the importance of own voices voices. and how messed up, quite frankly, it is that for so many years, the limited narratives that we have been exposed to about people of color and disenfranchised communities in general have been written by white people and groups in power. And I think there's been this really long overdue movement where those marginalized voices are finally being given the space to tell their own stories. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not saying this is the same thing because we're still talking here about a bunch of white privileged girls. But if we kind of shift the lens a little bit, like why is it that this middle-aged guy in the 80s is like, you know who I want to embody? some teenage girls i wonder how he got to that point of of writing of writing teenage girls like i i wonder if it's something that came natural to him if he was like some kind of um i i don't know, like a marketing research th- that he did and he yeah. was like i think that's what's gonna i don't like babysitter's club but edgier i i have no idea how he got to that point he's not good at doing it uh so i i I don't know but yeah 100 i see what you're saying and i have to say there is something about this book like uh, i i wouldn't say that race and ethnicity are explicitly stated except when he's talking about i think uh, um the love interest if you can call him the love interest (laughs) it's like incredibly creepy is you know this 22 year old guy who is obviously flirting with two 17 year olds I don't even like I'm I'm gonna be honest with you I'm a romance writer and I've always been very very attracted to romance uh, stories and romance plot lines within stories I didn't remember that there was a love story in this book so I want to think that my brain just kind of blocked it out and found it incredibly unappealing and uninteresting (laughs) (laughs) because that's that's what that's what it looks like to me right now like it just kind of if it's not creepy it's just like weird but so like the, the the ethnicity of of the characters is not explicitly stated and reading the way Christopher Pike talks about people maybe it's for the best because I can't imagine that if there was any diversity within the cast, if there was anyone who's not like you say, you know, relatively middle class or upper middle class and white, I cannot imagine that he would be able to do justice to any character. Yeah, I mean, I agree. This is a very whitewashed world, which mm-hmm. we hate to see. But I, to your point, I can't 
I'm glad that we didn't have to sort of experience what it would have looked like otherwise through his perspective. And I'm sure there are people listening who are like, well, even now we have adults who are writing for teenagers and embodying teenage characters in contemporary YA. Yes, I agree. I'm just telling you, you don't have to read this book. Just believe me. And I think, Allie, there's something... There's something very cringy about the way that these girls are written. It gives me the ick in a very real yeah. way. It feels like a, a weird fascination. Like you said, it's very reductive. There's this sense that he believes that. It's a it's like a parody of itself. Exactly, like, yeah. It's this idea that these girls are going through a very harrowing weekend, which we'll talk about. But at the end of the day, their priorities remain who's going to win homecoming queen, who is going to get a date with which boy, who's the thinnest, who's the hottest. People are dying. People are dying. (laughs) People have already died. And yet their priorities at every turn remain extremely superficial and misguided. And like, I think that we can agree that that is, that, that to me feels like, a man who has like watched a couple of teen movies in the 80s and it's like oh yes this is what teen girls care about and it's offensive it's kind of like the you know when like a male director shoots a pillow fight totally. between women like like it feels like that yeah but the pillow fight is like instead of physical it's like mental because one of the things that I don't even know. The first thing that hit me and that really upset me when we were reading the book, I would say, was how incredibly catty and mean all the girls are to each other. It's like the baseline is uh, there can be no real friendship between women. Like that's, mm. that's uh, it's obviously what he thinks. That was uh, uh, the first uh, the first couple of chapters. I was like, I don't like this. Like, they're supposed to be friends. Why are they so mean to each other? Why are they so petty and catty? And then I think I realized uh, that, and this is like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say something horrible, but it's actually a sentence that is in the book. And that's where I had to stop. I was reading, reading the book yesterday. I had to stop and go talk about it with other friends that I know used to read Christopher Pike and who are actually now adult thriller writers they were in my debut group oh interesting yeah and uh, um there is a sentence which is uh, basically a girl who is a little bit like plump or something it's she's never really described um you you don't know but she said something like i wish anorexia was contagious and i wish i could get it and i was like what is happening here yeah what is this and i I don't even know. I cannot believe that I was reading that stuff uh, at 10 or 9 or however old I was. Oh, my God. Yeah, that line was extremely upsetting. And that is Dana, who is the best friend of Lara. And Lara is, like, for all intents and purposes, like, our narrator. It's not a first-person narrator, but we're getting it from her perspective. Yeah. We meet Laura at the very beginning of the book. She and Dana and Celeste um, are driving to this ski trip and they're meeting their friends, Rachel and Mindy. Rachel and Mindy and Laura and Dana seem kind of at odds with each other, like they're friends, but they also hate each other. It feels to me like the four of them 
have been friends for many, many, many years. And of course, we find out that they had this like really traumatic event that bound them. It almost feels a little bit like Pretty Little Liars to me, like the secret happened and they can't talk about it. And they've stayed friends because they felt like they had to, but their lives have have diverged. Like it feels to me as though Rachel and Mindy are maybe more popular in the way that we think about it in a lot of teen pop culture and Laura and Dana are like super involved in school activities and they're well liked, but maybe they're not as like conventionally hot. So Dana has really low self-esteem and is talking a lot about her body and wanting to lose weight, but it's not even just Dana. Like Laura as her best friend doesn't even have anything nice to say about her. Yeah, it's awful. When she falls in the snow, right? Yeah. That, I, I was like, oh my God, you, she's your best friend. Like, what are you talking about? Oh my yeah. God. I was I was shocked. I, yeah. I was really upset. Sorry. And, uh, no, sorry, everyone. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It's no, no. I pulled out another line from earlier on that says, with a great deal of fondness, Laura had to admit that Dana's face was one best loved by a mother. Oh my God. Yet Dana had no shortage of boyfriends, only a lack of ones that, as Dana put it, appreciated her from the neck up. So again, like we have this sense that like, there's, there's just so many, there's so many problems happening there. So we have this, friend who is saying stuff like this about her friend which like this is not how friendships work Christopher Pike I know you're a dude and maybe you've been conditioned to believe that this is actually how cis women relate to each other but no (laughs) but it's not and also we're talking about like reducing Dana to her like her body and like her body as like a source of sexual pleasure for for men in this case. And she's what? 16, 17? 17. And so it's this idea that like, oh, she's had boyfriends, which is also slut shamey. She's had plenty of boyfriends yeah. and they all only appreciate her from the neck down. And we have all of those issues packed into a single sentence. That's kind of skillful if you think about it. How many problematic things you can put in one single sentence. It's true. I mean, he's really, he's his his statistics are impressive at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the way that he writes about the relationships between these five, well, there's six girls. So of course we have Lara, Dana, and Celeste are in one car. We have Rachel and Mindy. It's important to note that Celeste is like the new friend who is younger than these other girls. And Laura met her on the second day of school. She was in the library reading Carrie. There are so many Stephen King references. And I've never read Stephen King. Oh, uh, you know, maybe we should have gone with Stephen King. <laughs> I that like it better. <laughs> I actually really like Carrie, but again, I, this is an, a Carrie is another book that I read as a teenager and I haven't picked up again. So you know why? Yeah, like, I, I think I'm just going to leave it there. and not <laughs> Leave it where it belongs. And then so those are the five that are traveling up to this ski weekend, but they are going to visit another friend named Nell who was friends with that original foursome, Dana, Lara, Rachel, and Mindy, before she moved away. And Nell is like this wealthy girl who went to live somewhere else with her family, and now they have this really nice ski house. And so altogether, they're going to be six girls on this ski weekend. And I don't think that there was one moment where one of them said something that was like purely kind or complimentary about the other person. Like they're constantly putting each other down. There's so much talk about bodies and body size and appearance in general. 
even the fact that like Lara's whole thing when we meet her is like, am I going to win homecoming queen? She's already kind of decided that she doesn't have a chance because Rachel is so much more beautiful than she is. But she's like, yeah, but Rachel doesn't have that great of a personality. So people's personalities aren't even safe. Nothing is safe in this world. And it's it's also very sad generally because I think that Christopher Pike was going for a not like other girls type of deal with Lara. Yeah. I think he wanted her to be the positive one. But the truth is that, first of all, like you said, uh, even between couples of friends like Mindy and Rachel and uh, uh, Lara and Dana, they are still mean to each other, right? Even even among, like, even between these couples that are supposed to be supportive and nice, like, okay, so maybe, maybe there are two people who, you know, maybe there are these couples that are at odds because of things that happened in the past, but, you know, Dana and Laura should be supportive of each other, but no, they're not. There is, like, apparently being women means... Uh, that there is like an undercurrent of rivalry and uh, cattiness. I don't know. Maybe that's that's Christopher Pike's experience. But also just the fact that like Laura is uh, like she she's supposed to be not like other girls. She's a little bit kinder and a little bit more. She's the one who's investigating a little bit the disappearance of other people or the fact that weird things are starting to happen so we're supposed to see her as the smart one but she is also the one who's putting becoming homecoming queen before the disappearance of her best friend she is the one who you know she meets a boy and she forgets about everyone else there is like something incredibly i mean as uh, the girls, uh, you know, go skiing, they, they spend the day on the slopes, they meet boys, and Dana and Lara, and Lara meet, they meet <laughs> two boys, and one of the guys, uh, is his name Cal? Something Cal, like Cal, yeah, like Calvin. He makes, like, a pass at Dana, which is, and it's, it's, ob- it's non-consensual. Like, there is no other way of seeing it. Like, it's, it's just like, this guy, he gropes her, and she doesn't want to be groped. And uh, Laura, because she wants to see the friend, she still invites the guy who has groped uh, Dana over to Nell's house. So, like, there, there is, obviously, Christopher Pike wanted to have uh, the main character, Laura, the, the point-of-view character being uh, the better one like the the not like other girls one the the the, the intelligent kind smart uh, good-natured one but like she is a horrible person like what what is happening here yeah well and not, and not only that and i think it, it's as i understand it so dana and laura and rachel and mindy kind of go their separate ways a little bit when they get to the ski slopes like they're doing their own thing rachel and mindy are like exceptional skiers and they're skiing on all the hard on all the harder slopes, whereas Dana and Laura are just like easing their way in. And as I understand it, Mindy and Rachel had met Percy and Cal at the mall or something, like conveniently, of course. It's so so random. This man who go about and like this 22 year old man who pick up high school students in malls and while skiing, like, is that a thing that happened in the 80s? Why? Like, this is so wrong. It was, it was so wrong. So they're all from Oakland. They're now, I, I assume, a few hours away at this ski slope. 
we kind of get the feeling that Rachel was pushing that they go this particular weekend because she knew that Percy and Cal were going to be there. And so yeah. even though there were, report, there were reports of a blizzard, she was like, we have to go this weekend. And it's all beginning to make sense. So Rachel was initially interested in Percy and Mindy was initially interested in Cal. And so when Laura and Dana meet Percy and Cal in the lodge, when they're taking a break from skiing, they don't know that any of this has gone on. And so it's sort of like, of course, Rachel and Mindy come in and they're like jealous that Percy and Cal are interested in Laura and Dana because like, you know, they're the hotter ones. But to your point, Allie, like it's very clear that there's been some non-consensual stuff happening between Cal and Dana. And not only does Laura still invite them to come back to Nell's house, but she goes as far as to say to Percy, oh, don't worry, Dana's actually really into aggressive guys. Oh my so God, she, yes. That yeah, is... she actually likes Cal. Like, don't, because he says, like, I don't think we should come over. I feel like my friend had, like, a weird vibe with your friend in the bathroom, so, like, maybe we won't come. And Laura's, Laura's like, oh, no, don't worry about it. Like, she actually really likes him, she told me. And like she also, she's like mentally apologizing to her friend. She's like, "I'm sorry for uh, for using your name like this. I know it's a lie." And I'm like, "Are you sorry though? Are you sorry? I don't think you're sorry. <laughs> I think you're a horrible friend." Right. And even the notion that Cal is like a prize to be won. Oh my um, god! Yeah. It's so strange because like, and he gets redeemed in right. the end. In the end, he ends up being sort of a hero who shows up to like pick the girls up after they've been through even more trauma. But it's it's interesting that like, look, we like to see flawed characters in books. That's important. And like, I'm not saying, and I don't think Ali is saying either, that like we shouldn't shine a light on the bad things that happen in life in the books that we write and in the books that we read. But there needs to be a development. There needs to be like, something behind that and I think what's so frustrating as a reader is that it's like even though it's so obvious to us that like Cal is being extremely inappropriate and he's doing horrible things to these girls and yet he is still positioned until the very end of the book as somebody to be longed for and somebody to chase like Mindy and Dana both continue to sort of dance around him through the rest of the book whereas like I would have liked to see him do what he did and then be like kind of kicked to the curb. But Percy actually ends up being not horrible. I thought that he was like the villain early on. I was like, oh, he's behind all the weird stuff that's happening. And it turns out that like, while yes, it's super creepy that he's hitting on a teenager, he's not like actually responsible for any of the really bad stuff that's happening at Nell's house. So it's weird that he is also prized to be one, but the fact that Cal, who is sexually assaulting teenagers, yeah. remains desirable through the whole story is just disgusting there is also like a weird line in which this entire situation is lampshaded and i was like oh christopher you tried so hard with this so when mindy finds out that that cal hit hit on data she becomes a little bit upset and uh, she gets mad instead of at cal she gets mad uh, at dana and uh, there is, I think, I want to say it's probably the only parenthesis in the entire book. And there is like actually a sentence between parentheses that says she is like, uh, Mindy is an anti-feminist and for her, it's never the guy's fault. And I was like, oh God, what is happening here? How dare you, Christopher? Like, what the actual fuck? <laughs> 
what is happening? It was like, it was truly like pot kettle black. Like, who is the anti-feminist here? Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it was really like, Carl is, like you say, I, I'm 100% here for redemption arcs, but like he literally, like it's not like he apologizes at any time for, you know, being a sexually aggressive person who, you know, isn't asking for consent before touching a 17 year old. He never does that, right? He simply happens to be there at the right time. He rescues the girls from like the final showdown or I mean, he's there to bring over people who help rescue the girls. And then in the final scene, he is being fought for. He's being, yeah. He's uh, a catch, apparently. Apparently. (laughs) We're not seeing it. Um, So I I think it's important to note, like, all of this that we've just talked about is happening kind of under the surface of, like, the real drama, if you can believe it. This is not the plot of the book. This is not even the plot. And I I, I don't know. um, I mean, yeah, I think I was telling you on when we were already talking on on the podcast, but I didn't remember anything. Uh, I had read the book, you know, what 20 years ago 24 years ago and I didn't remember anything about this whole romantic plot line to the point that when once I started reading about Percy and Cal I thought that so you know I told you about Weekend the book that is basically like a companion but on the beach something like that more skin yeah so there, there is <laughs> There actually is uh, the same kind of Percy-like character who is like a new guy who is uh, joining the group. And uh, this guy ends up actually being uh, someone who is um, related to the two sisters and is kind of helping them a little bit in their adventure plot. But he is a good guy. He's not a bad guy. He just wanted to like help you know, find justice and stuff. So for the entirety of the book, as I was reading, I was like, wait, so is Percy actually a good guy? It's like, there was part of me who wanted him to be like an undercover cop or something. Yeah. Who was trying to like arrest Cal. Like that, that's what like I had in my head. I was like, I need this guy to be redeemed somehow. But no, he's just like a creep who hits on minors at the mall. That's what he is. Yeah. And Laura's like, we don't have to talk about our age difference. Like it's fine. She lies to him about her age. Yeah, there's just like a lot of weird stuff going on. And again, this is not even what the book is about. <laughs> Sorry, let's go back. Let's no, go back to the No, the, I think it's it's so important that we like just again reinforce, like emphasize the fact that like Christopher Pike thinks that these are the kinds of things that teenage girls would be actively concerned about when we have disappearances. Yeah. We have arson. We have like true trauma that these girls have shared in when they were in fourth grade, nine years old, 10 years old. And then we have people being like bound and gagged in a basement. We have like mistaken identities, but like, don't worry everybody. These girls are still really worried about these awful men who are assaulting them. They still want to date them. And they're also really worried about who's going to become the homecoming queen. None of that is as important. Like it's crazy. And they have to lose seven pounds to win Homecoming Queen. Because, like, there is this, like, seriously, it's like every other page there is a fat-shaming, uh, weight-obsessed uh, uh, comment. Like, it, it's just so, yeah, it's, it's uh, 
it's amazing. <laughs> it's bleak. It's bleak. But for at sure. the same time, they like there is this obsession with weight, but at the same time, like the descriptions of food were very, very long and detailed. It was like I should not be eating. Right. But I also should pretend that I have a voracious appetite because that's what Cosmopolitan says that men find attractive and I should be able to cook. But also I should lose weight. Like it, it's I cannot I want to take 10 year old me and be like, you're going to have so many body issues when you grow up and it's Christopher Pike's fault. <laughs> and I am so sorry. One redeeming thing I have to say is that Christopher Pike's like descriptive language is really beautiful. And I think that speaks to what you're saying about the food. Like I do love the way he writes about setting, the way he describes the things. Snow. That all really worked well for me. Yeah. So what what is happening with these girls? To sum it up, again, as best <laughs> as I can understand it, because I feel like this was a fever dream. About halfway through the book, we get this whole chapter that's a flashback. It's in italics, so we know that it's coming from a different time. When these girls were in fourth grade, so we had, again, Dana, Laura, Rachel, Mindy, and Nell. And at the time, Nell's little sister, Nicole, was also involved. And everybody's like, oh, Nicole, we don't want to hang out with Nicole. She's little and, like, annoying. But Laura really liked Nicole, and she wanted Nicole to feel included. I believe Laura is an only child, so she, like, enjoyed having somebody around. Somehow, these girls, again, in fourth grade, get into some alcohol at Dana's house, and they get wasted. Very outside of my own experience. I know that this is maybe something that others explored at that age, but to me, the fact that this all happened when they were so young was striking. With the parents upstairs, also yeah, kind of weird. Yeah, parents were, it was very rowdy. They decided they're going to use a Ouija board, which, as listeners know, I don't really go for spooky. So, like, Ouija boards, I'm like, ooh, I wonder what's going to happen. I don't even know what was going on. So, they're bullying Nicole with this Ouija board and, like, using the Ouija board as a prop to imply that Nicole is like a bad spirit in the room. They're having a seance. So they've lit they've lit all of these candles and over the course of like using this Ouija board, bullying Nicole, one of the candles is knocked over and unsurprisingly causes a huge fire. And again, they're in fourth grade. They've been drinking. They're drunk for the first time. Laura in her like not knowing what's going on and in her panic, she has a bottle, I think it was brandy, in her hand, and she is a child, and she's like, oh, this is something wet. I'm going to pour this on the fire, and it will put the fire out. Which, by the way, I did something kind of similar. Um, oh. Not with brandy and not with people, but like, uh, I, and I don't even remember what I poured, but I had something in the oven. Yeah. This, this, is, this is a thing, uh, like, this is kind of like a thing that comes up a lot, the whole, like, how could you poor brandy like and it seemed weird to me that you would blame someone so young because I, I I I was just thinking that I did something similar when we had like a small fire in the oven and I remember I don't even remember what it was that I poured on top of it but it was like a, a terrible idea and I remember that my husband had to stop me and be like what the fuck are you doing like yeah. are you so that is just to say a nine-year-old drunk panicked I feel like no one would blame her for for anything like like that yeah it's it's a logical impulse in a moment of panic like if you're holding something wet and like she doesn't know about what the chemical reaction is going to be so she she pours the brandy on the fire the fire gets much worse and in the process of the fire getting worse Nell is 
trying to save her little sister, Nicole, who is kind of in the middle of the fire. Um, she's burned horribly. And in, and in trying to save her little sister, Nell also sustains a lot of burns. Not quite as bad as Nicole, but she is burned very badly. Mm-hmm. Um, fast forward several weeks in the hospital, and Nicole sustains some sort of an infection from her burns. And the girls are told that she's passed away. And Nell is burned so horribly that her parents decide to kind of take her away Um, move out of town so that she can recover in peace and they're really embarrassed about her physical presentation now that she has which you know that's also very problematic and right yeah (laughs) Yeah. so the girls like I didn't quite understand because it's like they haven't really been in touch but yet they're going to her ski house and there's all this talk about how like for lack of a better word, weird Nell looks now because of these burns. And like there, there was one line where she was like, Nell could have or should have been beautiful. Like Nell can still be beautiful. Yeah. And like if you guys were her friends, like you would understand that. So when, I, but also there is a lot of talk. Like Nell usually wears makeup to cover her yeah. scars, and she doesn't. And like right. it's brought up several times that she's not wearing scar, wearing makeup to hide them in this specific weekend. And it's weird because it's like. Why would she do it among friends unless she really wants to? Like, it's why would you? It, it's brought up to her, like to her face. It's like, why aren't you wearing makeup? And it's like, how dare you? Like, if someone came to my house and was like, why aren't you wearing makeup? I would kick them the fuck out. Like, it's like, how dare you? Well, especially because they were they were literally at the scene of the crime when all of these burns happened exactly yeah and i mean it's kind of i don't want to say again i really don't don't think it's anyone's fault uh, like it's uh yeah but, but it kind of is your fault like it's you you were involved in the accident yeah. there is also um a part in <laughs> i know that nell is technically the villain but nell is kind of the most relatable character here and one of the things that she did when we are told that Laura, the main character, because again, she is not like other girls, Dana, I, I don't know what happened to Dana, but like it's, it's, we're told that Mindy has completely like blacked out the accident. We're told that Rachel has decided not to think about it because there's nothing she can do. Um, we're, I, I don't know, I think Dana just like cries whenever it comes up and so you can talk about it with her, but so basically, it's made it's it's made seem like like Laura is the only person who really cared about it and really still thought about Nicole who died and about poor Nell, and uh, she stopped eating because apparently good people are skinny and don't eat according to Christopher Pike, and she stopped eating and she was a bag of bones and then. At that point, she had she tried to go to par- therapy and nothing worked. But then Nell intervened and she talked to her and she was like, "It's not your fault. I don't blame you." And uh, uh, that's how Laura kind of started eating again and uh, was able to like uh, l- let go of what had happened. And uh, I'm just gonna say that Nell, the villain, is kind of the best character here. I'm sorry, but. <laughs> Well, I think she is, like, the only nuanced character. Like, she's the only character that is a little bit more complicated. And ultimately, what we find out after a series of, like, really confusing things happen where, like, Dana disappears for a little while. Laura is convinced that there's spontaneous combustion happening and, like, people are just, like, lighting on fire. (laughs) That was... Other things. Okay, I have to say that was kind of, like, a smart of him yeah because you end up really wondering like is this a paranormal book especially if you are like as a christopher pike 
fan who and I, someone who knows that he also writes a bunch of paranormals like I, I i can see my my kid me going is it is it like right is something happening is something spooky happening so that i really did like that part yeah because i hadn't read anything by him before so i was like oh maybe this is what is going on so that they they explore that route pretty extensively and then Lara goes out in the blizzard to try to find Dana and get to the bottom of what's going on. And she almost dies because of the blizzard. When she wakes up, she's tied up in a basement with the other girls. And what we find out is that Celeste, the mysterious younger girl who for some reason has been invited on this weekend excursion, is actually (gasps) Nicole because Nicole did not die. Yes. By the way, question. So I knew it. I knew it was her. That was it. Was really the only thing that I remember was that like yeah. she was. Was it something that was? It felt to me, to adult to me, that there were so many clues that pointed in that direction, and that it was easy to find out. But I remember being shocked when I read it at like nine or ten. What about you? I wasn't shocked because Christopher Pike does include some interesting clues. Like there's mm-hmm. this weird tension between Nell and Celeste, and like they seem to be keeping their distance. And then when they play charades later on, like. Nell and Celeste seem to be able to guess everything, you know, that that one prompts the other. So it's clear that they have a connection. And I knew there was something going on that was funky with Celeste. But like I said, I thought Percy, I thought Percy or Rachel would be more at the center of like, whatever creepy thing was happening. And that that's not the case. Because really, what's happening is like Nell has asked all of these people to come here so that she can get her revenge on her sister who has been in hiding for all these years under the assumed name of Celeste. And now she wants to burn these other girls. Can we please discuss that like Rachel is a red herring? Yeah. She, we are supposed to think that Rachel, like you said, you know, Rachel is at the center of this because there are so many clues, but the truth is that (laughs) All this, what that Rachel is trying to do is to like sabotage uh, Laura in her homecoming queen run. And that's right. why she literally almost like she tries to injure her. Like she could have died in a skiing accident. But <laughs> Rachel like cuts her while they're skiing in this like uh, uh, be- among the trees, which by the way, like don't, don't do that. It's very scary. And she almost kills her friend in an attempt to, like, secure the Homecoming Queen title. And then later she is planning, like, a coup with some other guy. Like, it's... So Rachel is a... It's it's a pretty well-carefully constructed red herring. Yeah. But in the end, it's all about who's the prettiest, the skinniest girl. And I just... I don't even know what I think about that. The whole thing is, it's it's bananas. The whole thing is bananas. <laughs> yes. I thought that Sweet Valley High books, especially like the later books, I thought those were bananas. This is bananas. And, you know, I've only ever seen the show uh, of that. Uh, I don't know that the books were ever in Italy. Um, and I didn't speak English as a kid, but now I want to read them <laughs> just for the experience. They're bananas. Uh, and to be honest with you, Allie, I don't really feel like I even understand how the book ends. We know that Laura gets out, like... They get out of this basement. They get out of their bindings. 
and history does repeat itself and that there's like a bottle of alcohol that's poured on the water and it's like oh no it's happening again but like there is an epilogue in which it seems like everybody's like moving past it but it was all it all happened so fast nell nell dies okay yeah that's what i thought and uh, um it's it's apparently not that big of a deal to anyone that <laughs> she's dead. Um, and I understand, you know, Nell had, had, like, she's the one who had orchestrated this entire plan. But, again, I don't want to be that person. And, yes, Nell is the villain. And, okay, maybe don't go around and try to murder your friends. But they're kind of shitty friends. <laughs> and there's part of me that's like, go Nell, go you. <laughs> I, I'm kind of on your side. There is uh, Celeste, Nicole is, uh, you know, she is burned a little more. One of the things that like is, is definitely, and I mean, I know that there is uh, part of it that is just like, you know, the plot and it had to be like that. But, you know, you have these two girls who are, are scarred and they are also the villains and the monsters of the situation. The way the scene of uh, Nicole revealing herself is written, uh, like she, you know, lifts a sweater. She's apparently wearing a sweater and nothing underneath, which I feel like if you're a burn victim, you probably would not want like a rough, thick sweater on your skin. But, you know, you want to have this like shock effect of like, like her body is described in really gruesome detail. Again, and like uh, Dana is puking and uh, uh, Rachel cannot look at her. Again, like there is this weird fetishism for like, look how ugly, look at the scars, look at how bad they are. And they also happen to be, you know, they are the two disabled people in the story and they happen to be the villains. Like this is just, yeah, it's not a good look for Christopher, I would say. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he describes her breasts in very vivid detail. Yeah. And then there's, there's even a note where she's like, and you don't want me to take off my pants because it's even worse down yeah, there. Yeah, that was, that is, yeah. It's no, it's, that is. Like, I think fetishization is a really great word in that it's like this fat, he, maybe he has this fascination or it would appear that he has this fascination with like what somebody's body might look like who had been through that. And, and yeah, in the end, like Nicole ends up having a redemption arc. Laura is basically like, I'll still call you Celeste if you want me to. Like, you can be whoever you want to be. But it's all, it's just, it is pure chaos at the end. Like, I didn't even know what to do with it. And, and I, I know what you're going to say, Allie, but I still want you to sum it up for me. On the whole, what was the experience of coming back to Slumber Party by Christopher P- Pike like? Uh, did it hold up for you or did it let you down? <laughs> I think when you say fever dream, you are so correct. Um, There's part of me that like, you know, remember being 10 and like not knowing what was going to happen and like wanting the mystery solved and thinking that maybe something paranormal was involved. And that bit was really enjoyable to me, but I don't even know how to say, I I, I guess I'm going to say it like this. If I had a kid, I would not let my kid read read this book. Um, And not because... uh, of the horror parts and not because uh, of the paranormal, not because, uh, you know, not, not even because uh, it's uh, a spooky thriller, but because of the way 
women are portrayed because of the way sexual relationships and the idea of like non-consensual sex is portrayed as something that you can just you know kind of shrug off because of uh, you know generally the the carelessness uh, in in their representation it, it, it was kind of like a I guess it was a <laughs> okay I don't want to say I don't want to use the word lightly. Uh, I don't want to say traumatizing experience, but like it was a shocking experience uh, because I was thinking about 10 year old me reading this and reading the line, I wish I had anorexia so I could be skinny and thinking, what did I internalize when I was reading mm -hmm. that? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so it was kind of like shocking to me. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm not going to read any of his other books because yeah. uh, they're better there in the past. <laughs> and... We'll leave them there. Yeah, I echo a lot of your sort of summarizing thoughts. And I think like listeners know that I am not, as I mentioned before, somebody who goes for scary or spooky things. And so knowing that Christopher Pike is known for scary things, when I started the book, I was like, oh, I'm going to be scared. But like you said, like the the sort of, conventionally scary parts of the book, which are like these girls being bound and like burned and the potential for paranormal elements. Like that was the least of it. Like that was so not disturbing to me relative to some of the other stuff that we saw in the character. So I, I echo everything you had to say. I think this was a really great conversation in terms of everything that we unpacked. And listeners who loved Christopher Pike I know there are a couple of you out there like I'm anxious to hear what you think about this and <laughs> and if you've revisited any of his other work since then other than Slumber Party but speaking of other than Slumber Party Alley because like you said we're leaving this in the past where it belongs <laughs> what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to listeners as an antidote to some an like antidote this? <laughs> okay so um actually uh I've been reading like you know I'm just gonna go with a thriller recommendation <laughs> because which is actually kind of a similar feeling but 70 million times better like i feel like saying 70 millions is like selling it short <laughs> so <laughs> it's actually the book you are invited by amanda jayatissa it's uh, um a beautiful thriller and it's also like a kind of like a getaway thriller um mm. she um the main character finds out that her former best friend is getting married to her former boyfriend and uh, she wants decides to go she gets invited to the wedding and she gets, decides to go to the wedding to kind of ruin it a little bit and uh, what happens is that the bride is killed and everyone who is at the ceremony is kind of like you know a suspect and uh, she is the one who had uh, the most valid motive but actually other people had motive as well and so it has kind of like a similar feeling to slumber party yeah some nell vibes yeah exactly but it's amazing it's set in sri lanka and the, the author amanda jayatissa is actually from sri lanka and uh, um you know you such a beautiful setting and you know we were talking about own voices there is nothing like reading a sri lankan character written by a sri lankan person it's it's just it's, it's such a good creepy scary delightful unpredictable book i highly recommend it do not pick up slumber party please pick up <laughs> you're invited so that's a thriller recommendation so this actually uh for for romance novels uh, um i'm gonna recommend actually a book that should 
just have come out uh, by the time the podcast airs, which is Do You Take This Man by Denise Williams. Uh, it's just so good. It's uh, uh, the story of a divorce lawyer who went viral when she officiated a wedding. Uh, like it was like an extemporaneous wedding and she was the officiant and she went viral. So now she's kind of like a professional wedding officiant slash divorce lawyer, which is amazing as a premise. And she finds herself having to organize a very important wedding with a dude bro wedding planner who used to be a professional football player and then he became like a football event coordinator and now he's doing weddings and they are opposites they should not be getting along they do not get along they hate each other but also they are incredibly attracted to each other and uh, this is like so enemies with benefits is one of my favorite tropes and Denise Williams is just like she is so good at writing it like she's just the best so I super highly recommend that and then there is my favorite book that I read this year and I feel like a tease because the book is not gonna be out until November and I am really really sorry but I need to put it on everyone's radar because it's truly one of the best books I've read ever. It's Pride and Protest by Nikki Payne, and it's a Pride and Prejudice retelling. I am obsessed with Pride and Prejudice, and uh, it's, uh, you know, a modern day retelling. It's uh, um, set in DC, and uh, Darcy, Darcy Fitzgerald, Fitzgerald, I can't say that word, is a millionaire, billionaire actually, who is trying to gentrify Lizzie, Lisa's neighborhood and Lisa is like not having it and uh, it's so sexy and funny and like relevant and political and like hilarious beautiful like this book is just fantastic so I think it will be out on November 15th I want to say, I don't know, the day, November, the month, I'm sure of that. If you, I would pre-order it if I were you, just because I think uh, you want it, like, on your doorstep the day it comes out on your Kindle, whatever. Those are some great plugs. Well, I'll include links to all of those books. We actually were lucky enough to have Denise Williams on the podcast recently, and it was so fun to hear her talk about her new book, and I'm really excited about it as well. But yes, listeners, check out the show notes for links to all of Allie's recommendations, And we have to wrap up our conversation with a little chat about your new book, Allie, Love on the Brain. Tell me more about it. I've been seeing it everywhere. I know we have so many listeners who are fans of yours, but I'm sure they'd love to hear from you, what inspired it, what it's about, anything else you want to share. So Love on the Brain is my second book, actually, and it's uh, kind of like my first book. It's a rom-com set in STEM academia, and it's the story of V, who is a neuroscientist, uh, who has been kind of floundering in her career. She she has like had a ha, she has had a few setbacks, but she gets chosen to co-lead a super important project at NASA with astronauts and she is super excited about it, except that then she finds out that the person she's going to have to co-lead the project with is her grad school nemesis. So it's an kind of like enemies to friends to lovers story. Uh, they have a little bit of a past, cats are involved. Uh, uh, there are a lot of like Marie Curie anecdotes, uh, which you might like or not. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, the book is out, I think. Yeah, it's out. <laughs> it came out last week. And uh, that's it, really. 
Yeah, well, it's out there. Congratulations. Congratulations on the success of the new book and also, of course, on the success of The Love Hypothesis. Thank you so much. It's been such a joy to have you on the show, and I hope you'll come back sometime. I loved it. Thank you for giving me these uh, eye-opening experience. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, I'm sure amazing is the word we would use. We had fun talking <laughs> about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.